This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to Davos Confidential. You're listening to Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and we're coming to you from Europe's highest city and the World Economic Forum. We're now midway through the forum, so I'll take stock of it all before handing off to our interview guests today. Kumi Naidu, the Secretary General of Amnesty International, and a double header featuring the head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom, and Jeremy Farrer, Director of the Wellcome Trust. But now for that stock taking. I think what we're seeing here is a forum where you have a very difficult dynamic. You see people like the queens of Davos dethroned. There's not much buzz around Sheryl Sandberg and Christine Lagarde being able to solve the world's problems anymore. You see some dodgy governments being the most visible from the billboards advertising the Saudis and Russian forums and the houses that really promote governments that you don't associate with democracy and the West, through to Bolsonaro, the new Brazilian president, being the first one up on the main stage this week. It really doesn't seem like the centrism and the globalism and the inspiration that the WEF is used to putting on. Tech has lost its shine. Davos needs a new set of money-making heroes. And also, the forum lost a lot of its traditional globalization pep talks, leaving it a little bit rudderless in these first uh, weeks. The WEF has also been defined by who isn't here, the Macrons, the Trudeaus, the Trumps, the Mays, all of those sort of folks, as much as by the people who are here. At the same time, participants seem to be having more serious conversations. There's less showing off, there's less corporate speed dating. So I do wonder whether we might be seeing some kind of uptick in serious output from the WEF next year, even if it is in a bit of a grey zone this year. The most interesting thing I went to today was a question and answer session with Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Facebook and the the role model for really millions of women around the world, thanks to her soft core feminism that she's really spread around the world in recent years. So Sandberg today was questioned by a German journalist, and she did a pretty good job of explaining the good Facebook does in the world and why it would be sad if government or users blew that up. Apparently, that is a threat the company perceives as real. She wouldn't have tackled it head-on otherwise. At the same time, Sandberg and the rest of the Facebook leadership are interested in reform rather than radical change to their business model. She and the company are determined not to go anywhere. What I did notice, though, was some new language. The company is now embracing rather than merely tolerating the EU's new general data protection law. That is quite different from how they lobbied around it and other EU regulation in recent years. And now it's time to hand you off to those interviews. 
So I'm standing here with Kumi Naidu, who's the Secretary-General of Amnesty International, obviously a big global name in the human rights world, and we're at a big global forum. Uh, are you finding your messages around technology, around the need to support human rights, even in a divided, populist time, are they being received well here, or is it a bit of an uphill struggle? Well, the message on the surface is not pushed back on, uh, is broadly well received. But the challenge for us with regard to the World Economic Forum is that over the last 50 years, the World Economic Forum has brought together this top political and business elites. It is under their sort of watch, if you want, mm -hmm. that we've seen inequality spiral to a completely unsustainable level. We've seen climate denialism, which now leaves us with the climate scientists saying we've got 12 years to get emissions to peak and come down, which is like no time at all. Uh, we have seen lip service being paid on things like gender equality and so on, but, um, but not the kind of substantive changes that we need. So, for example, after the 1997 Asian financial crisis and the 2008 global financial crisis, the conversation here should have been the global economy is not working for the majority of people on the planet. We need system redesign, system innovation, system transformation. But the response was system recovery, system maintenance, system protection. So, And almost an idea that you can support uh, progressive issues on the surface without having to change the fundamentals of that economic structure. Absolutely right. And I would say that it is being de uh, delusional to think that we can now solve the problems we face with incremental tinkering and marginal improvements, what is needed is structural and systemic change. If you want an image of what the World Economic Forum adds up to, you could say what's happening here is a rearranging of the deck chairs on the Titanic as humanity is sinking. Right? Uh, because you, know, you can find any number of topics that on the surface sounds good, but when you dig deeper, uh, it's really treating the symptoms rather than the root causes. And what are needed right now is a fundamental look at root causes. And however painful um, the changes are, we must have the political courage to, to make it. And that's not going to come out of the World Economic Forum. So we come here as civil society, the few of us that are here, less than 5% of the participants, not necessarily thinking that we're going to get you know, solutions. Uh, and maybe I'll just answer because why do we come here? So I would say three reasons. One is, just as we say, politics is far too important to be left to politicians alone. We would say even more strongly, economics is far too important to be left to business people alone. Secondly, we want to be able to present an alternative counter-narrative to, uh, in terms of solutions and how do we get out of some of the structural problems that we have in our economies. The third reason we come is that it's a real opportunity for some of us to do bilateral meetings. Like when I came as the head of Greenpeace, I used to be the head of Greenpeace between 2009 and uh, 2015. When I came in that role, I would save so much of carbon and money and uh, energy by rather than running around the world meeting CEOs the world that we all comes here. Yeah, so I could so you can do bilateral meetings and that offers us some efficiency of uh, And the last thing I would say is the media contingent here. Because of the power that's assembled here, there is a, always a very good media presence. Mm -hmm. And the media actually get quite bored with the orthodoxies of the mainstream and we think 
using that opportunity, all those reasons kind of almost, almost justify our participation. And in terms of the structural change, where do you think a tipping point for action might be? And and I'm wondering here that I think there are more and more facts stacking up uh, in line with your world perspective, but some people would say, well, that's just typical. That's just a left-wing agenda from NGOs. And I wonder... uh, are people here going to get shaken up by arguments or will it take some kind of climate crisis, some kind of uh, I, I, violent you, you, revolt? You've, 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 put, you've, actually put your, you've answered the question, actually. Those, are, I think, are the two main uh, drivers at the moment, right? So I think the climate reality is a game changer. I mean, you know, when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change the largest scientific enterprise in the history of humanity who generally gives conservative assessments, whatever the, they say in the assessments, and they tell us two months ago that we have 12 years to get emissions to peak and start coming down. I mean, we should be all like saying, pulling our hair out, saying, you know, it cannot be business as usual, right? So I think, uh, and, and, and the, it was what I always anticipated and, what, and I always wanted to be wrong on it, which was that, We'll only act when climate uh, extreme weather events start making it very clear that, that something's happening and it's Some happening. kind of presidential palace yeah. has to fall into the sea yeah. before we well, start well, to see the change. I think we have enough uh, extreme weather events because in the last decade, we've had more than a 100% increase in extreme weather events. So even today, you ask ordinary people, uh, you know, do you have a sense that something is changing in terms of our people say, yeah, whether it's rainfall patterns, whether it's uh, less water, uh, you know, um, sun and more rain or vice versa, all of those things uh, that are happening. The second thing is the resistance, right? So the resistance, unfortunately, is a wild card, right? It depends who mobilizes the resistance. Now, for example, with Brazil, it turns out that the start of the resistance against Dilma and uh, actually started in 2014 with a bus protest against bus fare increases. And now it turns out that people that are now part of the Bolsonaro... Of course, it wasn't a left or right issue. Working class people, left, right, everybody joined in, right? So, so what we are seeing is different kinds of resistance happening. And then the Paris one is very interesting, where the government has operated in a way where it's put a climate change against working class interests. And, and, and we want to be very clear from a civil society perspective. I don't know of no civil society organization that is saying differently to what I'm about to say, which is we don't think people who work in the fossil fuel industry are enemies. They are our brothers and sisters. They provide a critical service of keeping things moving because they were told that's the only way you can deliver energy. They should not be punished as a result of the fact that we now desperately need to make an urgent transition from an economy that's driven by dirty brown fossil fuel-based energy to an economy that's driven by clean green renewable-based energy, right? You can't blame them. So what we have is the solar... You can retrain them, though, to exactly. work in technologies exactly. so, that so, are greener and renewable. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's what I was about to say. So what we have been saying is, because, you know, I, like in the U.S., when I was in exile, I was a visiting scholar at uh, uh, Yale in between 1988 and 89, and that was the first time as a young student I heard this term, red-green tensions, mm-hmm. you know, tensions between environmentalism and labor. Yeah. So one of the things I set out when I became head of Greenpeace was to uh, build a red-green alliance, right? So... By the time I left, 
in all our high-level advocacy, the head of the Global Trade Union Movement, Sharon Burroughs, was in the conversation. Sharon's a fellow Australian, and she's someone who's gone to the forefront of the technology debate and also to the green debate. She's amazing. I I, I worry that the international labor movement doesn't have uh, the levers and the power that it had once to to really implement that sort of thinking. But Sharon Burroughs really is out there in her thinking. I, I genuinely think Sharon is one of the most precious global assets we have. The most powerful one-liner I've heard on climate comes from not an environmentalist, but comes from a trade union leader, and that was Sharon, where she said, Secretary General, you might be wondering why me as a trade unionist, I have to, where my job is to fight for decent work and employment, better working conditions, wages, and so on, why I'm so passionate about climate. Because as a human being, as a mother, and as a worker leader, I realize, quote, there are no jobs on a dead planet. Right? You know, I mean, that was like the most chilling one-liner. So now when I'm trying to get the human rights movement to actually get involved in the climate fight, I say, you know, if there are no jobs on a dead planet, there are no human beings on a dead planet, there are no human rights on a dead planet, so of course. So, so, so when I look at the issues that we have uh, thinking on tech, for example, I mean, this whole thing has been framed within the fourth industrial revolution and so on. Uh, I think both for the technological changes we need as well as the energy changes in our energy system, I don't think it's simply about replacing, like say with energy, it's not simply about replacing dirty energy with clean energy or fossil fuels with renewable energy. There's more to be fixed with our economic system. The people on the top have to be willing to take less so that people at the bottom can get more than the crumbs that they are getting now. Kumin do thank you so much for joining us on Davos Confidential. Thank you. You were listening to Kumi Naidu, the Secretary General of Amnesty International. So I'm sitting here on the Friendship Bench in the Congress Center of the World Economic Forum. And the Friendship Bench is a concept of providing support and mental well-being to people around you in society. It comes from uh, Southern Africa, I believe. And I'm here with Jeremy and with Tedros, who are here to raise the profile of mental health at the WEF and around the world. Uh, Tedros, maybe kick off with what is your message to the participants here and, and broader society about why we need to take mental health more seriously. Half of the population, world population, doesn't have access to essential services. And this includes mental health. And the message to the global society or citizens is mental health should get uh, the necessary attention it needs. Uh, What we see now is uh, mental health is actually one of the most neglected. And that's why WHO is now in its new strategic plan, takes it as uh, a flagship initiative. And we want, we want the world to understand uh, the seriousness of the problem we have with regard to uh, mental health problems. And one is, I don't know if people know, but it's a very tragic one. Uh, 800,000 people die every year due to suicide. <laughs> that's really unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And we should do something. And uh, that's why it's our priority now. And uh, we, we would like to, I would like to use this opportunity actually to call upon all partners to, to uh, really participate. Of course, we see some renewed commitment now. We're encouraged, but we have to do. 
to do more. Now, Jeremy, you're with the Wellcome Trust and you're known for being uh, innovators and risk takers in health and care. And we're seeing some advances in mental health debates around the world. Um, can you tell us a bit about what you think is working best and uh, what you're going to announce to the world uh, with your Davos uh, adventure? So, I, firstly, I, I, I don't think there is any global health without global mental health. I mean, that's what uh, Dr. Tedros at WHO has stated. And, and also it completely fits into the critical importance of universal health coverage. Because you, you actually, we cannot care for people without having universal health coverage. So it's the bedrock of, of everything. Um, we believe that, that, that firstly, there, there have been some major advances. The Friendship Bench is one example. Um, there is opportunities. Digital often gets um, criticised, but, but actually digital is also a way to help people. Oh, yeah. and online can, cognitive behavioural therapy, online, that's been very useful. I found that useful. Hugely useful and impactful. Um, and, and, and not just in younger people, but actually... Um, you know, many people don't want to wait to see a nurse or doctor they don't know. They, they want something at 2 o'clock in the morning. Which, So I think that is a real advance. And as you know, it's, it's really having an impact. Um, equally, it's true that research in mental health has been neglected. Um, and health care has been neglected in mental health. So what we hope, and you know, it's one of our many very positive partnerships with the WHO, um, is that we can sort of catalyze a whole new way of thinking about mental health. We can bring y- young, great scientists into it to provide the next generation of uh, interventions and public health, that we can, you know, people like Dixon, who, who we want to gain, bring really bright young people into this, whereas in the past they may have gone into other areas. And, and we think what we can do as a funder of research um, is provide the evidence around workplace mental health, what we can all do as employers and employees to, to improve our environments for health. That's something Tedros has again put at the top of the agenda at WHO. Um, and now employers are quite trusted as well. So is it about finding different trusted people who can you know, be the catalyst for people to really yeah, take think, their health more seriously? I think you raise a really important point. And, and in, a, in a time when there's a lot of mistrust around, actually, interestingly, people are trusting their employer. And that, that gives us an opportunity to provide in that employer uh, employee relationship things that are good for all of us you know we've all been touched by mental health we've we've uh, it affects us all um, and we should all embrace that and then we need to help provide the evidence what works best you know we know the friendship bench works because Dixon did the research to prove it worked um, if we could work with the private sector the education system governments uh, foundations WHO um, I think in the next in 2019 could be a year where we really change the perception and the reality of mental health now one final question because it strikes me that this bench is not a very expensive project mm-hmm. proof that money doesn't solve all problems and that you can do quite a lot with with very little there um, is, is, is that a lesson that we should take away that it is not just about the spending it's about the the creativity of how you approach these issues yes uh, i will comment on the mental health in workplace before i move on move into this one um, the way we do work has changed tremendously mm-hmm. and it's more stressful now and having uh, guidelines to tackle it at the uh, workplace level will be very important because not only will we help people in terms of their keeping their health but at the same time it can increase productivity 
And that's a message that will go down well here at the World Economic Forum. It's good for both. <laughs> and it's good for us also. <laughs> Dr. Tedros, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. That was Jeremy Farah from the Wellcome Trust and Tedros Adenon, the head of the World Health Organization. Thanks for listening yet again. Podcasting is a team effort, so I need to make sure that you know that this wasn't possible without the work of Andrew Gray and Eddie Wax. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast, you can do it on any of the platforms that you found it. And you can also go to politico.eu forward slash registration, sign the box there for EU Confidential. We'll send you all our future podcasts by email and invite you to any podcast related events. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.